0: Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I am your host, John Schwabisch. I'm here with a very, very exciting guest on this week's episode. I'm here with the one and only Edward Tufte. Professor, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for uh, taking some time out. You're down here in Virginia giving your um, famous workshop, standing in the huge ballroom. (laughs) Um, So I'm very excited to talk to you. Let's start with um, some of the work that you're currently uh, working on. Uh, There are
1: three or four main Projects. Um, First, I'm doing my one-day course, Mm -hmm. and I do about um, 30 courses a year, and I still love it after all these years. (laughs) We're at now uh, 275,000 people have come to this over the years, and I love teaching. And the course is always kind of teaching my next book. They get all four books now, but I'm teaching. Um, more out of my current manuscript. Mm-hmm. And I've always done that. I've sort of been one book ahead. Yeah. yeah. And trying it out. And,
0: right.
1: And it's a good way to learn to talk through things to a class. You have to start to, you have to understand things. When you have to, to, to teach, to teach it, you understand it. Right. You gain more understanding. So I'm trying to gain self-understanding. And so I'm teaching. The current uh, book documentary film, which is going so slowly that books and videos will probably be the same thing by the time I get it done. It's called the thinking eye. I regard the most important interface as the interface between the light that comes into the eye and goes into the brain. Mm-hmm. So I don't like the software metaphor, but the, the, the idea is to improve the software the, of how, how people think. Mm-hmm. And all my work has kind of been about that secret, how to make people smarter. But this is overtly now how to think analytically and judge evidence and reason about it and skills that, uh, to develop and attitude. It's kind of, qual- uh, on the background, it's, uh, sort of an aspirational autobiography mm-hmm. that I wish I could do all these things that I suggest that people <laughs> should do. Right. Uh so, uh I wish I could follow all my words. Some of the advice I try hard to do myself, but right. it's, it's very it's hard. hard yeah. So it's sort of an aspirational. Right. And the um, so it's to improve analytical thinking. First, um, about um, seeing mm-hmm. and how to see better. And then about reasoning. See, and then, and I think this is most important: producing, Mm -hmm. making something of the seeing. As Steve Jobs said, "Real artists ship," that is, they make something, they execute. Why else in a way do it? Yeah, and that's how it gets. It has effects and becomes tested, and then there's a cycle. After you go through this of editing, which again is. Now trying to see your own work mm-hmm. with fresh vacation eyes, innocent eyes, and to uh, think more and to think afresh about it and then produce. And that's very important. That goes over and
0: over is that cycle. So is the book about the, the process through creating a, a data visualization or a graphic, or is it sort of more general about creating, just creating, a creative, producing a creative product? It can be teaching.
1: Mm-hmm. It can be poetry. It can be writing. It could be a movie. Mm-hmm. It's about anything that somebody else looks at. Right. Um, the, uh, the data visualization is pretty narrow. Uh, yeah. This is about, uh, and I don't believe ever in pre-specifying a mode of production. In other words, a lot of people come and ask me at the course, um, I have to talk to the higher-ups and you know they're a little impatient and a little stupid. How can I use visualization? And I say, do whatever it takes. <laughs> you know, don't pre-specify. Yeah. Don't even pre-specify a data set. And don't pre-specify, for heaven's sakes, a method. Mm-hmm. You should use words and images and sock puppets and maps <laughs> and charts. And and that's a very important point in the mm-hmm. book is this spirit of whatever it takes. Yeah. And that's a very different spirit than being process-oriented. A lot of scholarship is things like how to use data visualization to study economics. Mm-hmm. Well, the real question to me is how do you answer how answer some economic questions yes. and do whatever it takes by right. doing it. Right. And that's one of the big points of the book actually is is uh, it's a little bit muddling through, but it breaks out of this, you know, rote march where you use conventional methods or a pre-specified method. And there's this big literature that's always a little soft, using data visualization to su- to study topic X. Mm-hmm. And they're usually not a contribution to either field. Mm-hmm. That they don't have quite enough content knowledge of either, mm-hmm. and they try to gain credibility by combining these two things that people haven't done before. Mm-hmm. That's not a contribution. Mm-hmm. It's making a finding about economics or making a finding about data visualization. In mm-hmm. fact, you bring a method to it. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, um, any any you know competent scholar is going to use different right. back to the thinking eye, uh, and so that that's going to uh, have four essays: some on, uh, on the idea of, about uh, margins and edges and frames and surrounds, and what goes on in the interaction. Between the frame context and the material inside. Uh, The Thinking Eye essay is the big thing. And um, there'll be an essay about called Seeing Around, which Mm -hmm. is about seeing in three space. And I've been learning about that very hard for ten years (laughs) doing sculpture. Right. And I've been showing a lot. Um, I showed at Fermi Lab and the Aldrich Contemporary Art Museum, and I had a gallery in New York for three years. And I've been doing something which is very hard for artists, especially sculptors. I've been selling pieces, (laughs) and I do it do it because partly I think I understand design in Flatland. Nobody ever will understand all of content in Flatland, but I understand Flatland, and. You want a real interest problem. Yeah. See, we're good at, at, in Flatland, at reasoning about a cell in a spreadsheet or, or reading a poem. Can, can that same kind of analytical intensity apply to as we see the world? Yeah. That focus and discipline and simplicity of content, which is not true of the real world. And so everything is so luscious and so complex and and so empirical of strategies in seen in the real world. So when I have a flat, that's what sculptor is call a painting or an okay. engraving, mm-hmm. a flat, <laughs> on the wall, in maybe two or three months, I don't see it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I have to move it to see it with fresh eyes. Every time I go out in the sculpture fields, it's different. Mm-hmm. The light is different. I'm moving differently. The light is moving. The piece is moving. It's from different angles. It's raining. The dogs are running around. The season is different. And it is such a pure, wonderful, intense environment, contemplative, and often beyond words. When people, I have a 234-acre sculpture farm that will be left by my foundation in perpetuity. It's open space shows the work of one artist, mm-hmm. my work. And we have an annual open house. We're open one day for a year, each year. Mm-hmm. And our fifth one is on October 17th okay. in Woodbury, Connecticut, this sat- coming Saturday on October 17th. And there are signs up in the driveway, diamond signs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of them is driving up says, shut up and look. That's <laughs> undiplomatic, but I, I mean it. Yeah, that conversation uses probably half or two thirds of our brain processing power. Well, why not for a little while devote all the brain processing processing power to seeing? Yes, it's right. amazing the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the land I have has old New England stone walls, and we were out walking along them, and I said to my friend, "Let's." Uh, let's stop talking, and after about 10 minutes, you could hear the faintest noise, far away. And then, the white seemed to change, and so you could look underneath the trees, and the shadows were no longer blown out to black. Mm-hmm. And the whites, like reflections off the snow, were no longer blown out to white. So it's like a perfect photographic day where you have a gentle, filtered light, except it was happening in our brain. Right. Because we were all, all our yeah. brain power. And so it, it increased the dynamic range of the eye, which is already pretty good. Yeah. And so the blacks weren't blown out, and nor were the whites. <laughs> and I was just, I just was so thrilled by that. The only thing difficult was the footsteps of my companion on the leaves became annoying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Conversation couldn't cover that up. Right.
1: Right. And then also people change their experience when they don't talk. So a couple will start to split up and walk around the pieces and be possessed by them. And when you walk by somebody, they won't acknowledge you and under this condition yeah, no yeah, talking. are yeah. talking. And so seeing graces have replaced social graces mm-hmm. with that concentration. Yeah. And I, this really came true. Uh, Paul Ekman, who's a great psychologist and, uh, of emotions and nonverbal behavior and expression of emotion, Visited the sculpture grounds. He's an old dear friend of mine, and he went out and he meditates and he's done books with the Dalai Lama and stuff. And he said they were beyond words, hmm. and I I started crying <laughs> because he he really got it right, and I was so happy that somebody with his you know capacity with background capacity pa- power right. Right. yeah right could could do that. So that's the sculpture part, and a lot of things that I learned in Flatland are. Similar. So in flatland, you have positive space, or figure and ground, um, and painting and, and diagrams and everything. Well, in, in the real world, you have the material and you have airspace. Mm-hmm. But sculptures like me, and even really super ones like Richard Serra, agree or say that air is a material. And when I'm building something, there are great big pieces. I have two million pounds of stone mm-hmm. megaliths and there's you know, big pieces. There's more talk between my colleagues who are running the backhoe and welding and so on about air than about the material. Mm. And more talk about the interface between air and the material and also the joints between rather than the body, and and the the body material. Itself, right. And so it's kind of eerie. Yeah. And it changes in three dimensions; it's not fixed the way it is on mm-hmm. flatland. And as you walk around, and as the light changes, and so it has—it's very empirical. Yeah, you know you have to look at. it. There are certain strategies for looking that are part of the thinking eye. So I'm looking at a three-dimensional object, and we're kind of editing it. And I look at it close, and then I turn my back and walk away, because you can't walk away fast enough to see how the thing changes. You have to, because it changes gradually. Or if you walk around a piece, you have to walk fast. Mm-hmm. To, so I turn my back on it, and then I turn around suddenly after I've gotten you know, 10 meters away. And so I see with fresh eyes. I don't see this gradual shift. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean by a strategy for the thinking eye. It's very practical mm-hmm. in a way about you know, surprise your eye. Keep your eye fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Move at a pace where you can really detect change, so it's not too smooth. Mm-hmm. And you can detect before and after right. change. So all this, ha- and it's all hands-on. I love the physicality. Mm-hmm. It's not like the computer screen. Right. Uh, it used to be the way it was in design a long time ago, where you cut and pasted and had exacto knives right. and all of that. Yeah. And there was a craft hand. Yeah. But it, that's gone. Yeah. And probably for the good, but it's it's gone.
0: But and have you? Uh, Investigator looked at some of the the data art that people are doing, where there, you know, there's there's I unfortunately forget her name, but there's a woman who makes uh, baskets, you know, baskets based on biological data. Have you have you looked at any of that? Have you gone to any of those exhibits to see what people are doing, sort of blending those two? Um,
1: I will looking at this as an artist, yeah. Only it's not first-rate art. Um, my view um, is that on all things. I only care about enormous excellence. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see anything else. Um, I fought the war against stupidity for a while. Maybe about 5% is in fact the war against stupidity, against PowerPoint and junk. But I'm not really interested in that. Okay. It attracts people's attention because it's critical. But I'm, I'm in my life, and my, almost all my work is very positive. And the whole basis is um, the identification of excellence, the careful study and celebration of excellence, and maybe the fourth time in looking and reading, maybe being a little skeptical. Mm -hmm. But there's so much to be learned from all the stuff in the past. And you see that in my books, which go back, you know, they're in 20 countries, and, you know, the, the best information designer in the universe is Galileo. And he had terabytes of information through his telescope. Mm-hmm. You know the resolution and his engravings and yeah. so on. And he just can see so well, and he can think better than anybody. <laughs> and he's doing science and nature. Yeah. And, you know. And whenever I come out of ideas, I look through his collected yeah. papers. And you know, oh my goodness, look <laughs> at <laughs> look that. Look what he did. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as an art, as an artist, that kind of work uh, doesn't count. Mm. That it's like an interdisciplinary gimmick, in a way, mm-hmm. where it's difficult in universities. Usually, interdisciplinary work doesn't quite make it. In either, I've done a little bit of data art. Uh, my Feynman diagrams, uh, which are stainless steel, and uh, I showed them at Fermi Lab, so I had real physicists <laughs> looking at them. That was really <laughs> yeah, fun. Yeah, I thought that was interesting for that. And one of them said, and pointed at one of my diagrams and pointed out to at a. Uh, where subatomic particles interacted, and said, how did that miracle happen? In real science, the word miracle is not a good word, right? <laughs> not at all. No. <laughs> and I had kind of half anticipated it. And I said, well, you know, there are all these little fudges, particularly constants in, in quantum mechanics, and so this is just a little fudge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, a vir- it's a virtual intersection, know, kind of like <laughs> right. that, like a virtual book. Um, um, but that was so wonderful because it was reassuring yeah. that I, the science was okay. But, but I saw them really as an artist.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So, you've mentioned uh, all the books and sort of looking back, so, so I want to ask you to look back. You've been, the first book came out in 1986? Three. 1983. So you've been teaching these classes for 30 some odd years. Well, I taught them at Yale mm-hmm. for quite a
1: while. I took early retirement. I left Yale at nineteen uh, when I was 59 because uh, the teaching was going so spectacularly well. My joke is that I retired from Yale in order to teach and do research. Okay. <laughs> that I was unencumbered by it. Right. And uh, I didn't have to worry about income right. because of the successes okay. and things of the books and the tour. And so I started... I started teaching the courses in 1993. Okay. Uh, And I had two books then. I had Envisioning and then the first book. Mm -hmm. And it was called, the first tour is called The Kitchen Tour because we were rebuilding our kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to name it, you know, like the Rolling Stones. Yeah, Yeah, right, right. right, right. The nails tour. It's a very practical tour. Right, this was the kitchen kitchen tour. tour. And, but also I wanted to get the word out I didn't want to s- uh, sit around New Haven waiting for people to come because yeah. they're not going to come right you've got to go
0: out on the road uh, and to, you and you were self-publishing which at the time I suspect was a new sort of thing yeah. yes uh, and that's it's
1: a glorious story but I didn't want to react okay so so that that was the, the the beginning was I had two books I used to go out with the books in the trunk of my car make mm-hmm. a little pile and now we have moving vans and roadies and and it's, it's 700 gigs later and 270,000 people later yeah. it's still i really love it i get i even almost like flying because i'm going to i'm going to a place i do something i enjoy yeah
0: yeah so okay so 20 some odd years of teaching this particular workshop i'm curious if you have seen a change in the types of people attend the questions you hear and then let me let me broaden that question into what you've seen in the field of, of visualizing information, of visualizing data, and how you've seen that sort of change over the last 30 years and maybe where you see it heading over the next 30 years. So that's a lot I know in one question. Right. Well,
1: I, I can say about the people who come, I do zero audience research. I pay... Um, I don't think about the audience at all. I'm not interested in reactions. I talk to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I have office hours. but. Um, uh, I'm too busy uh, uh, writing books and selling books and going to the course to do market research. We don't have time for it because we're too busy shipping stuff. And so uh, I think the history of data visualization has undergone a tremendous transformation due to one big thing, which is the resolution of our display devices is now getting close to the resolution of paper and it is almost worthy of the human eye brain system. Hmm. So, in years past, everybody was looking at a Dell laptop, and the resolution of that was 8% the resolution of paper. You can now get a 4K screen, which is 4.5 times HD, mm-hmm. for $800. Yeah. It's the high resolution screens that made the smartphones possible, the iPad possible, the 5K Apple, which I just love. Possible, and the software is hasn't caught up at all. Mm-hmm. The graphics, a lot of them are still doing second semester product uh, things in programming, but it's in a new language. Mm-hmm. There's not you know the software is way behind, particularly on the Windows side, way behind, and it's the the, the hardware have been, has made visualization possible. I love it. It's been so much because I wrote the books paper. And most of all the design work was under, uh, done under five-fold magnification. There are jokes in those books that only, you can only see, at,
0: at <laughs> maybe 3
1: right. And so it's like a dream for me yeah. that now I could see on a backlit screen with spectacular color and interact with it and enlarge it. And... You know, I'm a big fan of paper, but when I look at it on a good screen, it just glows. Yeah, it does, yeah. And art is just amazing. Not quite like the painting, but in some ways it's better than being there because you can be alone with it and enlarge it and almost touch it. And, you know, a great piece you can't normally yeah. be that intimate yeah. with. So it's the, it's the intimacy. And the software, I think, has been generally disappointing that, I had a, a diagram that shows the. It's from originally from the New York Times that shows the weather for every day for a year with temperatures and highs and lows and normals. And so somebody sent me a thing. Hey, I did this in R. Yeah. Well, my students in you know 1984 were running something called Calcomp with you know in a Harvard Graphics. There was a you know then yeah. and doing those things. Mm-hmm. And so. What gain is there in a sense that it's now being done in 20 different Mm -hmm. languages? The other thing is Brett Victor said something very interesting the other day, which is that there's a huge gap in the computer world between an idea and the implementation of it. And that hit home. I first made Sparklines in the mid 90s, I was consulting for Hewlett Packard, and they were uh, going to have a Unix box in every patient's room,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a, me- a medical box, and we or maybe wheel it around or maybe have one. And they send me what are called flow sheets in medicine, which was like a spreadsheet, time across the top in categories, mm-hmm. a- empirical time, not categories, but empirical measure, and then what was what happened, the name of what happened, mm-hmm. and they'd be very long and very empty and effect spreadsheets. So I got these, and then in the margin, there was a little space, and I would accumulate all that history and make a little thing, a pencil thing, a little data word, Sparkline. And so and I was teaching my students that in the late 90s. Well, so last week on the um, Apple Watch, I saw Sparklines, medical Sparklines, just right there. And it made it to Epic, which is a big medical Mm -hmm. data thing. Uh, two years ago, mm-hmm. that's a long time yeah. for that to happen. Right, um, it made it actually. It was interesting. It made it to Excel pretty early on. I was real, and they didn't screw it up. Well, uh, I was surprised. Yeah. They did a very good job. It made it to Google Analytics pretty early on. Mm-hmm. But the, the actual day-to-day implementation, you know, finally, yeah. that I mean, it's it's been implemented quite a few places <laughs> in sports particularly, but but still to see it on, as a piece of Brand new, you know, a nice thing yeah. like that. That's a long time. Yeah. And, but, but, uh, Brett Victor uh, was uh, was saying that's the common, mm-hmm. the things that people have thought of years and years ago are it's finally coming finally true. Coming, yeah. There's a lot of baggage and inertia in the, uh, certainly in Microsoft, because they have a terrible baggage problem with all those people out there. Um, part of the baggage, though, is created by software houses that use proprietary formats, mm-hmm. that is an awful problem. Um, I've been working on some medical patient data. I did some papers long ago, and they're now coming
0: in 94.
1: They're, yeah. Partly because of recovery money, there was 20 to 30 billion in the recovery for medical records and, uh, and for electronic. And that's been a delight to uh, the accountants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you see medical record, electronic records all over the place, but you don't see them in the survival data for patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been trying to push that along. Right. And the big problem is there are at least a 1,000 devices in a hospital, each of which has its own damn proprietary yeah. format. It's like a tragedy. And they don't talk to each other. They don't yeah. talk to each other at all. Right. It's so awful. I've been paying attention to what's being done at Yale, What's being done, at a major at Cleveland Clinic. So the way that Yale communicates, say, cardiology, with Cleveland Cardiology, is by something called fax. Mm-hmm. People under 40 don't know what that is. <laughs> you go into an active practice, and there will be 10 side inches in a day uh-huh. of faxed medical records, yeah. even though they both have the same electronic right. records thing. Right. <laughs> They can't talk to each other. No, they can't talk to each other. Right? And it's this problem that peop- that the programmers or the software houses think they own the content just because it happened to pass through their format. Mm-hmm. And the first person who said accepted proprietary formats in the government and in universities and everywhere—that's terrible what mm-hmm. they did. And they should write contracts. Mm-hmm. We don't do proprietary. Period. Right. If you want this, you know, only bidders. We. Or they're and, open. I mean, do open. open? Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Because the costs now are enormous. Locking those things away. Yeah. Right. In the data visualization world, we've seen this sort of explosion in Tableau and Plotly. Do you think they're all just sort of swimming on the top of the waters, not really diving into the deep, the deep stuff that's really going to help make a difference?
1: I think uh, that it can make great deal of difference by information throughput, mm-hmm. and uh, you can certainly see the incredible difference it's made at the graphics news reporting at the New York Times. Um, but scientists have had big data since Galileo, and they still, their work remains still at the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. The best visualizations in the world are found in the journal Nature, not at spy agencies or visualization shops or, or uh, uh, supercomputers centers, Mm -hmm. practicing scientists who have amounts of data. But in terms of the quality of the credibility and quality of inference, they don't make much difference. Because let's say there are 20 major threats Mm -hmm. to inference. And so one of them is small sample size, only one. There's still specification error, regression toward the mean, cherry picking, yeah. and all the other things. And so it, it can make some difference, particularly in how you communicate with people. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't made too much difference in exploratory. It, real scientists have solved the problem already. Mm-hmm. And they're so far ahead of social science, um, except maybe for the, the times. And But that's where to look. And a lot of what the Times has done is not visualization. It's now being receptive to evidence other than words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and words and photographs, yeah. that was what they did. They now do imaging of data, and they, and they do a lot more data analysis. And so that's, that's what's made them. And the visualizations are terrific, and, and access to the world, and they're wonderfully done. But that's only part of, of the revolution
0: mm-hmm. here.
1: It's bringing uh, uh, numbers to journalism. Yeah, that, that was always hard. Yeah, um, to for them to do. I trained some journalists quite a bit at the Woodrow Wilson School years ago, and you know they were they were word people or yeah. or photographic people, and the Times really did it beautifully by calling them graphics news reporters. Mm-hmm. It was about news, and there are 40 people in that department. Only one of them is a designer, my student, Jonathan Coram. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them are statisticians or economists mm-hmm. or reporters who have come and learned enough visualization. Yeah. And some of the stories, they write themselves. So it's done to report, right, right. not to use a method,
0: but to report the news. So do you So do you think it's about um, – so you've mentioned it's an interdisciplinary work. in the In the new journalism, do you think it's about – individuals who have all these different skills or is it about the team? Well, I think it's clearly
1: about the team. You'll notice that on the really big projects, there are five names right. at the time. Right. Well, of course. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what's interesting is that some of the people who do the graphics also do the reporting. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan Coram often reads the scientific right. articles and yeah. so on and then turns them into visualizations by talking to the scientists right. and reading, reading their work. And that integration between content and design has always been central to my work. I've dined out essentially on the insight that it's all about the content, yes. not about the particular methods. For, I've done now that for thirty years. I still, I'm still,
0: I'm still shocked that people think that's an amazing insight. I mean, I always, I always use Ben Schneiderman's quote, which says, "Visualization is about insight, not about pictures." Mm-hmm. It all rests mm-hmm. on that on the data.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's about. It's about explaining content, explaining things. Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: exactly. So where are we headed? So we've got all the new tools. Maybe people are starting to build these teams like the Times and, and other agencies. Where, where do you think we're headed in, in the field of, I'm not going to call it data visualization, I'll say communicating data.
1: Or, or reasoning about data. Or too. reasoning about data, right. Right, that's uh, yeah. Th- thinking. Yeah, or, or thinking r- about thinking, data. Think. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, thinking about data. Um, my proposal which I teach in my class and which is at my website is called Maps Moving in Time so it's 4K or 6K
0: video Mm -hmm. so
1: no more sticks and ticks you know 10, 20, 30 sticks and ticks and still land but we should have the information throughput Mm -hmm. of video I never did there look at films for many years from a data point of view because they were so much information throughput. Yeah, it yeah. was scary. Yeah. And they knew what they were doing. <laughs> and they they had an infinite amount of money. Yeah, yeah. And so on. it was frightening. <laughs> right. But now so the, the demo I have is of the Swiss mountain maps, which are a contour map. And then there's a slow panning over them. And that slow panning leads to gentle 3D. Most 3D stuff sticks you, gives you a headache, mm-hmm. or you have to wear funny glasses, right. or sticks you in the eye, it's too aggressive. Yeah. But the panning of the Swiss mountain maps, you can see a ski lift between two mountains mm-hmm. the mountain yeah. peaks. It's just incredible. And so this has the information throughput and design power of a classic, probably one of the best maps ever done. They're contour lines, and they're, it's just mm-hmm. amazing. Incredible typography. This was Alp's great content too, <laughs> and but combining that with essentially infinite scroll, and probably not letting the user interact too much because they'll get impatient. It's a slow pace, and so they're getting this tremendous information throughput on a four K or six K screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking six thousand by four thousand. Yeah. they're just amazing things, and they're getting that with an intense design. The, know, a great map, a contour map, in with video throughput. Mm-hmm. And so you're cutting edge of resolution, of video, and at the classic cutting edge of the layout. Yeah, And so I've been doing some things, uh, uh, and there are demos on at my website, of maps moving in time. And so it's a complete shift. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the... Production is requires tremendous amounts of data, and tremendous uh, and well, not the computational power is almost trivial now, but it requires lots of data, and it's not easy editing video. Mm -hmm. It's it's you know it's uh, probably the square of the hard you know compared to still hand something like that. Or maybe you're, it's it's yeah it's you're going from things the area is squared and but movies there's a kind of almost volume yeah, so it's almost. almost by the cube yeah. you know, sort of, <laughs> slightly right and so see again it's relying it's it's saying that the gain is in the hardware mm-hmm. video well software video but hardware, and then in the screens yeah and so you know I don't know if people are ever going to do their little home data visualizations yeah. but for in real science and at the New York Times and for serious big-time presentations that's what's it's already starting to yeah. happen right. and that's really powerful mm-hmm. so you have the patience and care with the general scan but the rush of information with the video and so it doesn't have the impatience of television mm-hmm. which is you know they where they you know jump and stuff there has that Kind of concentrated analytical eye yep. with it, with the slow panning, and it's the fundamental human act of thinking, which is in this swamp of material, you want to find the diamonds, the targets, the intervention points, right. the relevant points. Yeah, and so it's aimed, like all information displays, to support human cognitive skills. Mm-hmm. To me, the fundamental principle of design is that is to to let the user perform funda- the fundamental analytical tasks that people engage in when they reason about data. So understand causality, and right. make comparisons, and, uh, and think in a multivariate way. Mm-hmm. And, like. and that's the point.
0: Yeah. And that leads to designs. Mm-hmm. And do you think that visualizations can help people better understand the data, sort of going backwards a little bit from I'm going to present something to the to the user and still help them understand sort of the whole network of how that visualization was created. I mean, that's either teaching statistics through visualizations or teaching sort of complicated topics or big numbers or whatever it is through visualization. Can we, do you think people can, can ultimately understand what's under the hood?
1: Well, it's fairly high-powered stuff, mm-hmm. and I assume that... Um, Just as uh, as places like Apple and Twitter have made many uh, consumerized many things that they will do it, right? And uh, there might be some nice things, and there'll be some people, uh, probably young, bright young people, who will do amazing things with accessibility to those tools. Mm -hmm. And so, um, they're going to be much better at these things than we are. You know, (laughs) I just hired somebody who's twenty four and. She's out of this world. She's a humanist and was studying medieval, but she knows R. Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> you know, she knows LaTeX. She knows R. Uh-huh. She know, you know, yeah. holy wow. Right. Okay, so I, I think you know, as you think, as as this as students, young people mm-hmm. who are you know, who are quick learners and so on, and you know, you've got to learn these things. And especially like things like coding or things like that. Right. You know, before age twenty-five, it's all over. Yeah. Uh, I've tried to learn R several times. I can't even hardly get past data entry. And, you know, I, I kind of get you know, somehow a, a loop
0: Just <laughs> at that. Just getting spreadsheets.
1: Right. So, of course, it'll it'll somehow be you know not commodified. That's a terrible. But um, and I hope it won't be like R. That it will be accessible. Mm-hmm. It won't be that you know they'll have a general thing, and there won't be an interest in in in, in the kind of um,
0: so something that something that's more uh, universal for even the lay re, the lay user could sort of go in and right. So if they
1: can, okay, so they they can make a reasonably luscious statistical graphic, mm-hmm. uh, some kind of fairly detailed map, and put their data on it, and then okay, they pan over it. Mm-hmm. So, that's now giving essentially, it's giving interaction, but it's not letting the user completely set the pace. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. That it's hard enough to think, and and also to do computer to, to do interaction. often that's a kind of separation. Mm-hmm. The way I use most of the my tools from from R and from. Illustrator, and things like that. Because I stand about three feet away, and I say, Elaine, move that a little bit to the right. My de- I say to my design mm-hmm. assistant. Right. Because I find it hard to do a serious program you know, at the level of Illustrator, or R, or InDesign, mm-hmm. and think about that, and get frustrated now and then, and have to solve a puzzle. And also to reason about the data, which yeah. I'm trying to do. Right. And so I, I think, you know, that – now it may be that some editing could be – I don't know, it could be done by voice and you could say do this or something. But you're asking for a very hard combination mm-hmm. because these are big league serious programs and they always have to have a fair amount of that. Yeah. And there's no real, you know, big solution. You know, it's like yeah. film editing. Yeah. You know, that the distance between a real film edit, Avid, or, or Final Cut – and the difference between what we can do is a lot narrower now on mm-hmm. our devices, but it's not. It's not simple. It's Yeah, it's right. not simple, yeah. and it's not real film. Right. And, and it's inherently complicated and hard. Yes. And and so clever interface won't help much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, what it means is if you want to do that stuff, get a, good, get a bright summer,
0: geeky summer intern. <laughs> <laughs> a young person who knows how to do the yeah, code. Exactly. Right, right. Um, so you spend a lot of time... I would guess, looking at uh, what people are creating and, and the conversations that go on, when you when you see what people are talking about, when either the the um, when the creators are are talking about what they're what they're making or people who are critiquing them, do you have a sense of, of how the community could do a better job of that? And maybe they're not. Maybe they're doing a great job. Maybe maybe the conversation is great. But do you, do you think there could there's there's a community there where Uh, Perhaps there's changes to be made and and ways in which the whole field can sort of move forward. I think if you
1: look around, there are some really excellent critiques. And that's just part of my usual strategy, to find really great things and think about them. Mm -hmm. So the science article that took apart Google Flu Mm -hmm. is an amazing piece done by people at Harvard and MIT. And it makes... Excellent and obvious point. That um, of the twenty threats to validity, little data, small is only one. Right. And so Google made errors, naive econometric errors. Mm-hmm. You know, model searching, and and they had a very brittle model, which of course crumbled yep. upon retail. Yep. Classic. Yeah. And they're work- They're working with time series and stuff, and they're. The, the econometrics was naive. Yeah. And the one thing I liked, be, uh, or one side effect of the science article um, about Google Flu was, uh, it did use the, the word hubris quite a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but That's what I mean by a really great critique. I don't think, I think much better than critique is the style of my books, which is very, only 5% of the war against stupidity which is rather the best critique is to make something wonderful Mm -hmm. to celebrate excellence and say this is our standard. So one of the very important things I teach in the classes is any diagram that you make, any table, any statistical graphic, any project management chart, anything that looks like any kind of visualization Mm -hmm. at all, you put it next on your screen to Google Maps. And you ask your IT department and your software people, how come I can't put 120 words anywhere I want on my display? Mm-hmm. How can how come I can't use light colors so I have five different layers? How come I have 40% computer administrative debris in my things and they have virtually none? How come I have to put, because of corporate guidelines, five logos on my thing? Yeah. They have one little tiny thing, play in the big leagues. Mm-hmm so that's what I mean by you know, this con- kind of comparison. And it's not critiquing the thing. It's saying, here is a model of excellence. Usually when people are faced with a model of excellence, they say it's too difficult, and the higher ups won't understand it. And then in response, you say, Google Maps is the most widely used image in human history, and you can—that's afresh every couple of days. Mm -hmm. It's in every language, every country in the world, and people are using it not just to look at, but to find out where they are Mm -hmm. and how to get there. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And people use that information richness all the time. And so that's the kind of critique. I mean, occasionally it's nice to take something apart, especially if they are. um, uh, Nate Silver does some nice critiques. Mm And you know you're usually taking apart the forces of evil. You should remember when you do that, is that your allies cheat or do bad things just as much as your opponents? Mm-hmm. That your opponents do, are not uniquely inept statistically or cheating. It's just as true of your allies. Mm-hmm. And so, but a lot of critiques are motivated by a disagreement of, with the substance. Right. And it's now comes a statistical critique, Question, yeah. but you got to remember, you know, give me a critique of something you, you know, you like yeah. philosophically. Right. Um, there is a role; it's very active, of course, in peer review. Mm-hmm. That happens, and it's also active is that the the junk uh, is never footnoted again. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a the real sorting of quality, mm-hmm. and I I don't want to look. I've got. You know, I probably have ten or fifteen years left. I don't want to spend my time looking at, at mediocre stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I I there's so much excellence left, and the chances are that looking at five pages of Galileo will be much better than looking at you know a week of Twitter or a month of Twitter mm-hmm. or a year of Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy Twitter yeah. <laughs> and it's great fun, but to you know and it diversifies my. Mm-hmm point of view and I get to see all this stuff Yeah, very quickly yeah. Yeah. but I have a very long time horizon both forward mm-hmm. uh, in that I'm trying to do stuff that people are going to read for a long time the challenge is to do forever knowledge and plus going back in history and why should this day now be any better than some day five years ago or a day back in, Gal- Gal- mm-hmm. in Galileo's day and so there's such a recency bias to our thinking and to the web and to obviously Facebook and to Twitter it's enormous mm-hmm. and everything is stacked by the most recent on top so you don't i have my website the threads are organized the other way the oldest is on top mm-hmm. and it grows you know as you go down yeah. it's, uh, i think one of the great thing, one of the very important things about the thinking eye is to think hard about your time horizon mm-hmm. and what what time horizon you're working for, but also from what time horizon. It took me until I was in my early 30s to realize that I did not have to read the quarterly journal of such and such, because it would turn out there was only one article out of 25 that would ever be cited again. Mm -hmm. And even the best article might be cited only a few times, and they wouldn't even be cited by the author's mother. (laughs) So, it's to get out of that daily flow that many of us have to live in and I've been really lucky to escape that mm-hmm. and to be able to have this long, you know, drifty time horizon. Yeah. There, and there's so many wonderful things back then <laughs> or back, you know, last week. Right. Uh, and they're often more wonderful than today. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a great help when I learned that, is to think, look very long, far ahead. Not, don't do proper nouns. Do verbs. Mm-hmm. Do principles. Do forever things like some real scientists do with nature's laws, mm-hmm. do that. And then the world of the past, really smart people have been doing visualization and explaining. You know, And just to, you know, to spend a day in Galileo's collected papers and just look through the illustrations, it's just, you know, they're like 26 volumes. And I just do 10 pages and I haven't, you know, there's another idea, yeah.
0: you know. No. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, of looking into the future for what can okay. inspire us. I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Okay, terrific. Thank Very you. Great.
0: And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Policy of Viz podcast. Until next time, thanks a lot. Bye bye.